0: Hi class, today we're going to talk about economic systems and philosophy. Can anyone tell me, what is socialism? Anyone? Anyone? Anybody but Brian?
1: Hello everybody and welcome to the fifth episode of Anybody But Brian, Uh, I wanted to say sorry for the real delay in posting these days. For the last few weeks, I've had a lot of travel for work, uh, and it's slowed down. Uh, The pace that I'd like to keep up with this, but such is life these days. Uh, Anyway, in this episode, we're going to tackle isms, as I like to say, uh, primarily socialism and fascism and how they're used in today's political culture. Um, During this episode, we actually have an interview uh, with a good friend of mine from graduate school, Connor McGovern. Uh, Connor studied history and Slavic studies at Boston College uh, and then got a master's degree from Georgetown University School of Foreign Service uh, on demography and international security. Uh, He's also lived abroad as a Fulbright scholar in Bulgaria and studied history and Slavic studies at Trinity College in Dublin. Uh, He is currently an active social scientist and a previous research analyst at a variety of nonprofits and uh, government agencies, and he is a current union president. Uh, So Connor and I will be talking about the big isms in terms of political economy uh, and how those differ from academic definitions and kind of how we use them today. So I hope you all enjoy the episode and the interview, and uh, we'll get started.
0: All right, so... As I mentioned, I'm uh, joined here by my friend, Connor McGovern, uh, who has a great sense of expertise around a lot of the classic texts for the many isms that uh, we introduced in the beginning of the segment. Uh, so thanks for coming on, Connor. I appreciate the time. Yeah, of course. Yeah. All right. So, uh, you know, one of the things that gets thrown around these days, especially around, uh, you know, Bernie's declaration that he was a democratic socialist, but even prior to that, uh, with President Obama uh, is the notion that people on the left in the United States are, are socialists. And the fact that Bernie, you know, plays up that there's a better education system in Finland and there's more equitable health care and education and just, uh, you know, basic human needs met in countries like Norway and Sweden uh, generally set people into a little bit of a tizzy. <laughs> so to kind of step back and look at the macro perspective uh, from your Education and, and opinion, what's really the definition of socialism?
2: You know, it's, that's, it's funny because, like, in addition to, you know, Bernie and Obama, you'll occasionally hear it. And, like, people on the left will, will even, like, claim that it includes, like, the post office, the interstate highway system, the U.S. military, in one of, like, its more bizarre, uh, I think, uh, uh, <laughs> appearances. Um, but, you know, I, I think, and and it's not to downplay the 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 good things that come out of, you know, the Finnish uh healthcare system and Finnish welfare state and things like that, but um, you know, in my in my opinion those things aren't socialism and, and you know, and those things are probably to the left of someone like Bernie or or uh or and certainly Obama. Um yeah, these the, these are the sort of like these are the new New, it's a new New Deal type thing um, with Bernie, you know. And I don't think his—he may label himself differently, but his personal politics aren't too much different than anyone in the Congressional Progressive Caucus, right? Like there, there really isn't that much between him and Liz Warren, for example. Um, so, you know, what what traditionally what ha- has been called the the sort of Nordic countries, these Scandinavian—they're called social democracies, you know they have these really strong welfare states but they're still they're still reliant on a capitalist system. So um that's that's really the important thing about socialism is that socialism is a you know to use sort of fancy terms here a mode of production that follows from and follows capitalism. Um so you know, in under socialism production and, and this was really the thing that Marx and a lot of the classical economists, your Smiths and Ricardo's, um focused on was was the sphere of production. Uh and under socialism production would be done for human needs rather than for the market and for profit, right? So um it is that sort of that famous line from each according to their needs to you know from each according to their their abilities to each according to their needs right like that is that is in its in in a like very pithy sense the heart of socialism. Um, what it you know under capitalism people you know your workers make something and someone else owns it you know when we it's it's tougher now cuz so much of it is like this service or knowledge economy but you know in the traditional sense right we're all making some kind of product um as a as a worker and someone else but someone else owns it and gets to sell it we get we get paid a wage for that um but our wage is necessarily less than what is being sold so cuz without that you know you don't have profit and you don't have from there you don't have capital and and things like that so that's that's at a, under socialism, you know, a person labors for themselves and then beneath the needs of humanity as a whole rather than for, for a wage. So, that's the heart of it. I, it's really hard to describe what fully developed socialism would look like. Like, that's something people always want to demand. Like, what does it mean? You know, what, what does it look like? And like um, we've
0: we've never seen it I mean people throw right. around this word based around essentially community initiatives to say we think that the majority of people in the populace should have this in in their view basic or human right whether that's health care or access to education or a livable wage but if it's all based on kind of the foundational or classical definition where you still have an exchange value and a difference in your you know, mm-hmm. and the difference in that exchange value for what things are are sold for and what they were produced for, uh, as you mentioned, that's that's kind of the core of the actual system. So right. no one really knows what perfect socialism looks like because it hasn't existed.
2: And it's and you know it, the the fact is people hold that hold that against it, but when you think about it, in the Middle Ages, when when serfs were laboring under feudalism and the church was you know ultra-powerful and things, there really wasn't a... There were people theorizing what the world beyond feudalism would look like, right? They tended not to live very long because that wasn't a particularly healthy hobby back then. (laughs) Um, But even when they did theorize that, like, it didn't look like iPads and, you know, computers and things like that. It didn't look like capitalism. It didn't look like what we have now. Um, You know, The the sort of all the capitalism is all encompassing, right? Other all these other modes of production are all encompassing, and that's sort of how how we produce things is really how we shape our societies and things like that. So, um, you know, it's it's tough because our brains are so shaped by capitalist ideology that we just sort of assume that this is what the world looks like, will always look like, and has always looked like. So imagining beyond this some completely different way of life that would have been the case, like, it's just as hard for us now as it would have been for a serf in the 14th century. Um, Or for a
0: a slave owner in ancient Egypt and the mid-1700 English colonies. They couldn't think of, well, there's no other possible way to create this output. Uh, So obviously this is the the invisible hand of the market and that, <laughs> that's the way that it has to be. Right, right. Like, I think it's important that,
2: to note that, like, capitalism isn't, like, something that's trans-historical or has existed throughout history. And that's one of Marx's pro- most important insights, uh, that that capitalism's historically determined, that it arose sort of, you know, it, it's not inevitable and infinite. Uh, it's not a result of something called human nature it really has not existed for a substantial part of human history, right? There are very, very theories on when and how and where it, it arose. I tend to stick to what's called the, the Brenner thesis or the Brenner and Wood thesis. Um, you know, you had, it, it arose in England due to these, like, quirks of land tenure laws, um, you know, and in, like, the 17th century that arose because of, like, peasant revolts and uh you know political rivalry between nobility and, and you know country and city that kind of thing um these land tenure laws lead to landlords who become more interested in the sort of improving land um, and that sort of land improvement was different than what than what was doing being done by feudal lords in in like France and stuff eventually that that sort of obsession with improvement leads to you know in England begins to produce for the market and just dominates the rest of the world with its production in a way that no other place really did. you know you have colonialism that that comes alongside it and slavery and such um and really that sort of land improvement I mean Locke talks about this, but it's 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 intrinsic to their idea of co- colonialism in the new world too so but it's but it's like that's where capitalism comes from. It's it's not a, you know, people assume you know that the Romans were producing capitalistically and for the market and stuff, and it's just not just not
0: the case. Yeah, um, well, so. like you mentioned Locke, it's interesting, right? We think of everyone hates, uh Jefferson, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and obviously that was originally life, liberty, and property under Locke. So. Somehow we got right. to a place where we ex- we exchanged property for happiness, and everyone well, <laughs> that is a given. But you know,
2: Locke uh, lock's Locke's whole thing was effectively that you know the the new world was um what was the Europeans by right because the like American Indians were not had all this land, but they weren't doing anything to improve it, right? They weren't they were uh, introducing productivity increases to their land was essentially his argument for like why it was perfectly fine for the, uh, Europeans to come along and take it philosophically because it was just like, which is, which is really like the ideological seat of capitalism that like, you know, everything must, must, everything that exists must have the like most productivity and, and, uh, and profit wrung from it, right? Yeah. You know, and screw, human needs
0: yeah so you use Marx as kind of a a base of um, modern capitalism or kind of the way that capitalist thought came into modern consciousness in that way Uh, very frequently Marxism and socialism are used interchangeably Uh, it's an accurate representation and it's not kind of what's the difference
2: when you and you hear communism too you know and that's of course the boogeyman word because of the Soviet Union and such but uh you know it's 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 tough because cause socialism existed. The idea of socialism predates Marx, right? It's a it's a European movement in the late 18th and, and into, the early 19th, or into the early 19th century. But really, the first socialists are these sort of what are called utopian socialists, who who resemble more like anarchists. Um, you know, you have Saint Simone fourier in in France you have owen in in england um these are the sort of first people who who they their their idea was more of like what we would think of as like communes right you can withdraw from society and create your own society that's a sort of anarchist commune or or, or what have you um and of course that became popular later on as well but uh it's it's really there's also there was also Proudhon who was the sort of in in the middle of the 19th century in France is, is the, and, and throughout Europe is really this main thinker, um, you know, and much of Marx's early works, Marx and Engels, a lot of where this, the communist manifesto is a, is a is basically a position statement taking over the socialist movement by Marx and Engels. Um, so that's really where communist comes from. It's like the, uh, it, it's the, it's the Marx and Engels faction sort of versus the Proudhon faction. Uh, the, the, they really take down Proudhon in what's called, uh, in a book, Proudhon's famous book was called The Philosophy of Poverty. Uh, Engels and, and Marx in like classic, you know, 18th, 19th century trolling fashion wrote, their, like, takedown of him called The Poverty of Philosophy, um, which is, (laughs) yeah, which is, which was great, um, and, uh, Proudhon was, Proudhon was very into the idea of, you know, things like workers' communes and co-ops, things you still sort of see trotted out today. In fact, a lot of what I think, like, 21st century socialism or socialist movements look like is actually, like, Proudhonism as opposed to Marxism, um, but there's there's actually I, – I won't go too much into this. There's actually a really good movie that came out in the last year called The Young Marks, uh, which which is very well done, that sort of goes through this, um, and that sort of ends with the writing of the manifesto. Um, but, you know
0: uh, – Well, if, yeah, I mean, you brought up a good point that, you know, Marx and Engels, you're in the 1800s there – They're taking over existing thought and trying to insert it on what they believe was relevant. So, I mean, the citation always is in viewed or viewed that socialism or communism would take hold um, after an extremely industrialized Germany. He was never expecting Mm -hmm. 1917 Russia following as, you know, the czar to to be the type of economy that would be able to pivot immediately to uh, to socialism or communism. So
2: Right, um, that is that is absolutely true. And I mean, of course, there's a long time between the sort, of, there's various Marx periods too, right? There's the early Marx of like um, the manifesto and stuff like that. There's the later Marx of capital. And these are, there's there's questions about how sort of the, the continuity between the two of them. Obviously, they're the same person and things like that. But But the thought is Thought and the and analytical thing is very different. Um, I think when we talk about Marxism, it's really a way of looking at the world. Um, you know, Marx Marx was both a philosopher and a doer, and that was his that was sort of his thing, right? It's a it's a way it's what's called imminent critique is so it's a fancy Hegelian word for it, which is you know you burrow sort of into the middle of things and search out their contradictions and that's what capital is it's it, das capital right like it's a, mm-hmm. it's a volumes of work searching for the in, the inner workings of capital and how all these contradictions come about right he starts at the lowest point and ends at the highest so that's I, that's the difference between Marxism is like a way of thought socialism is a is both a movement, a political movement, and a um, and the name of the goal, right? If that makes sense. Um, yeah, absolutely. And communism was originally a particular political statement within that political like realm. So it was more focused on the idea of revolution and and certain political, you know. The, ways that the state were involved in, as opposed to Ferdinandism. And what communism
0: became, of course, is is very different. Bob. Yeah. So so going into maybe a more modern history, you know, when I first mentioned socialism, I'm talking about the insults that the right is hurling at the left, kind of mischaracterizing what socialism actually is, at least in the United States, from a right and left perspective. Uh, today, frequently you hear Democrats saying that Trump is a fascist, or you know, Mitch McConnell, or various people in the Republican establishment are are fascists. Um, is from an academic perspective, is that also a, a mischaracterization? Or uh, I mean, are there parallels between really the definition of fascism and kind of some of the current um, political ongoings in the United States today?
2: Yeah, and I, I mean, like people, the right wields the word communist because it invokes the Soviet Union. And that's understandable because the Soviet Union was like this big, scary boogeyman for a, a long time. Um, and like the Soviet Union, I mean, not to get too in, the, in depth, but like it started as a utopian project, right? Like, But the utopian project ended pretty quickly and then descended into sort of this nightmare Stalinism, which really was just it, – it continued to produce in a capitalist way. Um so it never got to a different mode of production, it, and and the upshot after Stalinism was just sort of an anemic capitalism run by where the party replaced like individual capitalists. Um, so like, in, like Maoist China is kind of the same way. So it's it, with like additional horrors layered on top. So it's 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 understandable why they like lob these these like. Kind of hand common attacks almost. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it it, it it was there. Like, people remember, you know, the Red Menace and things like that. I will say, like, the, the existence of the Soviet Union was actually really important to things like the Civil Rights Movement. Without, without the Soviet Union standing there as the boogeyman, because there was this alternative, right? It was quote-unquote communism. But a lot of these, you know, Martin Luther King was a true socialist and standing the, to the left of him were the likes of Malcolm X and the Black Panthers and things like that who, who were, you know, true socialists and there was this fear that if, you know, we don't let steam off, if we don't do stuff like food stamps and the Fair Housing Act and the, you know, and things like that, if we don't end Jim Crow, then, the, then we are going to have 1917 and 1968 and that's, uh, so there was this real fear, but good things came out of that. Like, yeah. So it's tough to plus plus the Soviet Union beat the Nazis, you know. So that's there's something to be said for that. But
0: uh, <laughs> well, to go <laughs> well, you said you know the, I mean it's the good boogeyman analogy, right? Because I think and, and you just mentioned the Nazis. I think people call uh, you know in today's uh, political climate, you're going to call somebody fascist because it evokes the, boo- the boogeyman of the Nazis. I mean, right. The reason why you're gonna say that is because you want to paint uh that opposing leader in the caricature of Hitler, whether it's true or not, because that has a very strong resonating negative connotation that is not going to be shaken. Right. And
2: I think like, I mean, obviously this is we're we're talking about this at a particularly at a particularly uh sort of sore point to talk about sort of right wing lunatics, um, given the events of the last week, but right. I, I do think, like, it's important when we talk about fascism and the like. It really does. I mean, my opinions on this are somewhat, contra- I would say, are probably controversial in my circles. But I think it, it really is this, like you said, it's an invective that just gets launched. Um, you know, it's, and the left's been doing that for years, right? Like it, it, it's now, like, it feels like liberals and the sort of center left have gotten gotten in on it, Um I so with fascism there's this left communist, you know, anarchist, this French guy Gidevay, He has a definition of fascism. Um he has four he has four criteria. He says it's born in the street, it stirs up disorder while preaching order. It's a movement of obsolete middle classes ending in their more or less violent destruction. And fourth, it regenerates from outside the traditional state, which is incapable of resolving the capitalist crisis. So, here's here's what I think. I think fascism is a historical movement of the 20s and 30s. I think it happened. It actually proved pretty crappy at doing what it was ostensibly for, which was sort of regenerating the state and and propping up capital. And what you've seen is that, you know, and, and what it did was it, it, I mean, in addition to just being like in the, in the case of the Nazis, hardly anti-Semitic or um, in the case, you know, and, and in all cases it was very much a reaction to like actually existing like communist settlement sentiment in Germany, in Italy uh, with the Soviet Union looming. And, you know, there, so it was, and And, of course, it was like, we're just gonna annihilate the trade unionists
0: right but
2: in our our current state has found a better way to do that It's just and I say this as a union president, right it's to accommodate or or bring the the unions in and get them to buy into the state, you know, like give them legal rights, you know give them put put them in a court of law and things like that it's it's a it's a much more effective way to do what they were trying, what they did. And, um, it's, so, so the, 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 problems that fascism was trying to solve have been much more, I think, you know, solved today when you, cause when you can just subsume trade unionists and dissidents and this, the like of that and the structure of the capitalist state. Um, you know, there's, that said, I mean, like, there are some real bad, like in, in these, in these positions. I mean, Trump obviously, you know, Victor Orban, Le Pen, um, Shinzo Abe, like he never gets mentioned, but he's probably the most right wing leader in the, <laughs> like, and, and like Japan always has this, like, will they slide back into right wing nationalism thing? Um, that, that's occasionally, you know, props up again. Um, but I don't think those guys, like, the difference between them and the fascists were they weren't coming from the outside. They're not supported by, like, goons, you know what I mean? Like, their, yeah. goon, their, goon, their goons aren't murdering trade unionists in the street, they're not. Yeah, there's, there's no beer home or
0: pushed, failed coup to try to get into government. These people were already in government.
2: Right, exactly. Like, they just, they the, the, state, was our, the state was, to some degree, tailor-made for them at this point. Like, they're these mechanisms are all there. They don't have to create it. Um, you know, and the goons, like, they, they're, the black shirts now, insofar as they're not represented by cops and, and border patrol and ice and, and the likes of that, you know, which those people operate the same under. their, who I think are the biggest sorts of threats to working class people and and you know, uh, oppressed people. They operate the same under Obama as they do under Trump, right? I mean, not not that's that's a little unfair when you talk about like border patrol and ICE and this, and the such. But but by and large, their like mission is the same. Was the same. Yeah, I mean, right. They're,
0: they're, and they're, there's and there's
2: there's no goons in the street. There's no there's no black shirts. There's no brown shirts. There's no uh you know that you have these rallies. Right, and the people who show up. Maybe it's thirty people. Maybe you know, like the DC rally where like a dozen people showed up, and they're all they're all social pariahs. You know, anti shows up to like you know, razz them or and fight them or whatever because they think these people are going to take down. And then Orrin Hatch like denounces them, and it's like, well, yeah, like here's the here's you know the people against them, are like anti you know anti and like Orrin Hatch, and it's like. I don't know. I mean, that's not to say – that's not to say there's not danger from, like, people on the right, but it's not what it used to be. It's not – it's almost like and, – and that's untrue on the left, too. There's no po- coordinated political activity now except, like, posting online. You just have lone wolf attacks, you know?
0: Right. And, and you know, what? that's – it's an interesting manifestation because how many things do on Hacks and fire agree on? It's probably a pretty short list. And that's kind of representative – in my opinion, of the fact that, um, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of people, you know, disagree with Trump, obviously. A lot of people disagree with Obama, but it's these lone wolf attacks that do crazy things because they're charged by our political climate. But in reality, the bulk of the establishment doesn't want it to change. So they don't actually want any, you know, one of the most fascinating things I always thought about how Trump ascended into power was, how did all of these, you know, Republicans that are so bought into the establishment actually, uh, you know, end up supporting somebody who, could, you know, at least in in oratory, was saying that he was going to destroy the the state and smash the swamp? Now, in reality, uh, it, it's become clear that they agreed to support that ticket because. He's done the opposite of that. I mean, he's had business interests deeper (laughs) and deeper into the the state and actually neutered unions even further and has, you know, prevented both blue and white collar integration to include even, you know, people with STEM degrees, which was what Republicans in Congress always used to put their their hat on. So, it's a very... Odd, uh, bedfellows that they make as, uh, as this kind of right wing populist, uh, uses that message to get in the door and then in reality enacts a variety of po- uh, policies that shatter the promise of any of those <laughs> populists that he was, uh, promising along the way.
2: Right. I mean, the populist message is, is like purely, it's, it's pure spectacle. It's just, it's, I mean, it's just a marketing campaign. And that's like what politics is now, you know and but i do i I do think it's really interesting that that you know people are just not capable of any sort of concerted political action beyond i guess voting and maybe like i I'm, I'm not even I'm not even talking you know you get rallies and things like this, but I'm even like you know and and political violence happens, but it's just weird these people will get immediately denounced, you know they're not part of any sort of organization. They often they often have mental illnesses. They're they're you know their their ideologies make no sense, right? They're not they're not coherent in any way. They're not. It's not like in the '60s where there were terrorist organizations, right? That were plotting these things and had some kind of message. I mean, it was usually a kind of it was kind of crazy or it wasn't going to happen or whatever. But there was at least an organization. You don't even have that now. It's the this like complete social breakdown. I mean I sound like I'm lamenting like the disappearance of of
0: like concerted terrorism but, no, no, but, no. I, but, but it, there's no there's no critical thinking. I mean it's literally like you said it's uh, opinions based off sound bites, there's no depth. I mean when you think about um when you think about even the the terrible attack that just happened in, in Pittsburgh uh you know people on the right are going well it's not my fault that he believes the bumper sticker is his entire ideology and you know i obviously I push back against that and say well if he didn't constantly have that bumper sticker plastered on commercials and fox news <laughs> television 24 hours a day 7 days a week maybe he would have been reading a book and, <laughs> and this wouldn't have happened. Right. but um yeah i mean the, the these people commit these heinous acts without any any sense of of real motive other than well, I heard these five things, and then I based my life off that, and then became radicalized, and it's it's a just terrible slope we seem to be falling down.
2: Well, and it's I I just think it's I just think there's an atomization, an atomization of sort of society that it, that goes along with right. It's not just it's it's the breakdown of like unions. It's the break right. I mean unions are the sort of nonviolent version of of a concerted political activity, but, you know, union coverage is really low in the U.S. and is falling even in the Nordic countries where they're like heavily promoted and basically in government. I mean, it's not, it's this, and it's the sort of bowling alone thesis, right? People are not engaged with the people next to them. But, I mean, I've kind of come to the point where I think the internet may just be like a net negative like a, a just
0: like huge net negative in world history too like yeah. so I don't well, know. on that same line of thinking you know people always question uh, you know why are evangelical Christians so strong politically and you know taking their beliefs out of the sentiment I think it's really about what you just described it's a community it's one of yeah, the I mean, communities yeah. that remain where people see somebody every week and they're kind of loyal in that group and they have discussions whether they be social or political or you know obviously religious but it's one of the few areas in american society left where people have that constant connection
2: yeah that's absolutely true um you know it's it's the there's like a few exceptions to this and certainly evangelical christian you know church of latter-day saints there's 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 a there's a small number of them. most of them are focused around generally right-leaning religious Christian religious organizations yeah. um and that's I mean that tells you something and I think we've seen that in how they're able to get sort of their political uh agendas
0: forward yeah all right well it's been a great conversation I, I really appreciate your time and some of the uh casual explanation of some very dense books (laughs) in uh, (laughs) historical political economy so uh, again thanks Connor for for stepping on and uh, I appreciate the time
2: no thanks a lot for having me Brian
0: well I hope
1: you enjoyed that interview again with Connor McGovern Uh, really some complex topics that he tried to tackle and I think one of the interesting ideas brought forward is that you know In many of these cases, well, personally, I certainly don't agree with almost any of the Trump policies. We need to be careful throwing around the word fascist um, or uh, any ism because the textbook definitions don't always match uh, what we see in real life. And a lot of times uh, the attention span of those who are putting forth these different labels and uh, different political philosophies around specific individuals or for their own means and not grounded in any type of history or analysis. So uh, I think it's an important topic. I know that was a little dense, but uh, I appreciate everybody hanging in there. Uh, I'm going to be in Japan for the next two weeks uh, on vacation. So uh, hopefully I'll start recording again when we get back. And I hope everyone has a great Thanksgiving. All right. Take care.